Hello, and welcome to the Fisher Poetry Podcast, a showcase of prose, poetry, and song written and performed by those in the commercial fishing community. Mostly. I'm your host, Brad. Thanks for joining us today. Today's episode is from the 2023 Fisher Poetry Gathering in Astoria, Oregon. In this episode, you'll hear from Fisher poet Annie Howell Adams of Friday Harbor, Washington, with introduction by Maggie Birch. Annie's performance was recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon on Friday, February 24th, 2023. So, without further ado, here's Maggie and Annie. Next up, we have Annie Howell Adams, who used to run a commercial salmon troller, uh, Fishing Vessel Marvel, out of Sitka, Alaska. I can't wait to hear you. Welcome up. Thank you. Hi, guys. Hey. Woo! Um, I'm going to tell you a fish story tonight, of course, because I'm a fisherman. Hi. There we go. How's that? I'm going to tell you a fish story tonight because I'm a fisherman. I did want to just mention a little thing that I'm the artist that did the poster this year. And the, the image, I wanted to honor my old skipper, David Kelly, who had a boat called the Arrow. And the poster, we left Astoria, went out the Columbia River, went across the Gulf, and the poster is a homeboy from Seaside, Oregon, and that's the arrow crossing the Gulf. Okay, so tonight I'm gonna read a fish story, and thanks to Fisher Poets, I've actually, okay, this is the first time I'm admitting this publicly, that I'm writing a memoir. She fished in Alaska, and, um, there's a, I have a little YouTube link. Uh, if you type in 1978 salmon trolling, you'll get to my little YouTube. I took a movie camera to Alaska when I was 21 years old, and the YouTube link uh, is that footage. So anyway, it's kind of fun. It's old school. I'm old school. Okay, fish story. The salmon opening was in two days. No one was around who wanted to go out. I didn't like fishing by myself. There was a possibility that something could go wrong, like accidentally falling overboard. The only time I fell in the water was in Sitka's harbor. That was bad enough, let alone falling from a moving boat at troll speed, three knots. The work wasn't hard, but two sets of eyes made things safer. There was no choice. I couldn't stay tied to the dock. If it was an easy place to fish, I could do it alone. There, was all, there were almost never any boats in Bjorka Channel. The gear was shallow, the scenery and the anchorage were both good. After a little pep talk to quell some trepidation and worry, I backed Marvel out of my slip and headed across Sitka Sound. Once the anchor was set, I salted down a few dozen herring to firm up overnight. Salmon always liked salted herring. Near the channel was an anchorage with enough room for two boats. The nearby scenic trees looked tortured, bonsai from wind and poor rocky soil, giving them sculptured shapes. 
To start the morning, it was easy to motor out of the anchorage at troll speed and just drop the gear in the water close by. No long run offshore, no loud scream of the diesel engine first thing in the morning at full throttle. It was simple, set the gear and then make some coffee and toast. A copy of Steinbeck's East of Eden was tucked in the wheelhouse for those long trolling hours of nothing. Marvel's small wheelhouse was like the cockpit of an airplane, but without all the dashboard. On the right side, sandwiched between studs, was a collection of music tapes, most of them recorded over the winter at a friend's house who worked at a radio station. He had an extensive album collection. Below the music tapes was an important fathometer showing the depth of water under the boat, the opposite of an altimeter. Trolling gear hung down at about 20 fathoms in shallow places or 30 fathoms deep or more in other locations. To entice king salmon feeding near the bottom, trollers moved along their fishing gear close to the bottom. A critical part of trolling was knowing the underwater topography, even though it couldn't be seen, only conceptualized. The sea bottom was anything but flat. Shallow spots or, or pinnacles, not all of them marked on charts, would snag gear. I left a pile of lead weights banging around on under, underwater pinnacles until I figured out what was happening along the bottom. When fishing close to the bottom, one eye was always on the fathometer. It was mounted on a hinge, so even from the cockpit when running the gear, it was possible to know what was happening under the boat. Also in the wheelhouse was a piece of electronics, a paper machine, that gave a sense of what was going on in the water column under the boat. It had a horrible smell, like something died, but provided useful information through a transducer mounted on the hull of the boat. Marvel's transducer was aimed ahead at five degrees, indicating what was coming up, sort of like foreseeing the future. On this morning, it showed that there was a lot of feed in the water. The paper machine was typical of fishing in general, a lot of good, salted with some bad, the smell. I lowered the gear with a polished bronze spoons on, on the bottom. Back at Fisherman's Terminal in Seattle, Gre Carl on the Grace gave me a king spoon to try. Take it, he said, I won't be using it. These spoons were made in Petersburg back in 1920. The bronze lure, a fin spoon, had a design of a little person holding their arms up to the sun. I attached the fin spoon to a freshly tied leader and clipped it to the bottom. It was the first time it had been in the water, having been wrapped in tissue paper and stowed away in a box for over 60 years. The fin spoon and my boat, the Marvel, were the same age. It was original equipment that lined up to catch the kind of fish that roamed the ocean in the 1920s, before the dams. I hoped that the fish gods would recognize this pairing from another era. Herring was clipped higher up on the stainless troll lines. Each of my four main stainless lines were rigged the same way. 
Without anyone to talk to, I entered into a different state of mind. Fishing with another person, a good friend on board, was social, chatty, funny. By myself, my focus was more deliberate, more thoughtful, and cautious. I had spent a summer fishing alone, hand trolling, but it was different now. With Marvel, it was a commitment. There were monthly boat payments. I was taking it seriously, figuring it out. Salmon fishing was exciting. On the first pass, the bell started ringing on the starboard trolling pole, indicating a fish was on. Standing in the cockpit in the stern of the boat, I engaged the hydraulic lever, bringing the gear in. Bam, a nice big 30-pound king salmon. And on the hook below was another nice fish, a double header. By the time I ran through all the four stainless lines, two more big ocean-run king salmon were on deck. I turned the boat right around, re-threaded some herring onto hooks, and circled back to troll through the same spot again. The channel was a deep canyon that led out to the ocean where salmon that normally lived in 50 fathoms of water or more could swim close to the shore and feed on bait fish that balled up in the shallow waters. A school of king salmon had moved onto my shallow reef. Same thing on the second and third pass. The fish were biting, I had the place to myself, it was a fisherman's dream. When a fish was hooked, if it was big enough and mad enough, it pulled on the stainless troll wire, even with a 50-pound lead weight hanging down off the bottom of the wire. It took a powerful fish to yank the wire around. When such a fish was hooked on the line, the best course of action was to let it tire itself out without baiting a shark or sea lion. On Marvel's stern was a long piece of surgical tubing, a super snubber. Having a fish clipped on the super snubber was both dangerous and effective. Dangerous because rarely the hook would tear out of the fish's mouth and catapult forward fish's revenge on fishermen. Effective because a fish would tire itself out, swimming and pulling on the stretchy tubing like a giant rubber band. The chance of landing a fish greatly improved after some time swimming on the super snubber. My fish was massive. It was a, oh my God, look at the size of that fish kind of fish. I ran through the gear and trolled back over the hot spot, letting Mr. Big move back and forth across the prop wash. He looked like a caged animal, pacing, calculating his escape. There's a poem by Elizabeth Bishop about catching an old fish. In the poem, she saw five hooks hanging like a beard from the fish's mouth. In the end, she decides to let the fish go, conflicted, about killing something so venerable. Now, I might be like the fisherman in the poem, but back then, the only goal was to land the fish. I waited, ran through all four lines, and kept an eye on Mr. Big. So how does a fish get so big? Did it miss a year or two to return to its river? 
Salmon typically are on a four-year life cycle, starting in their home stream, moving out to salt water where they stay until the fourth year. The scent of their river triggers the, the drive to spawn. Rain from their home streams mixes into ocean water. Fish can detect the smallest amount of their river's profile. Some salmon live longer than four years. They miss their cycle and continue to feed and grow out in the ocean waters. Maybe they swim to the other side of the Pacific. When rains fall and come, the fresh water pours out into the ocean, and these fish might be too far away to smell their particular scent, and the trigger to spawn is delayed. Biologists think that some king salmon are five, six, seven, or even eight years old. My fish must have been one of the elder eight-year king salmon because it was enormous. There's almost nothing more thrilling than seeing a salmon at the end of a leader swimming back and forth across the prop wash. Their backs are dark green, darker than the salt water. I watched the fish swim to see if it had tired at all. Everything needed to go just right to get it in the boat. My adrenaline was racing. This was by far the biggest fish I had ever hooked. I pulled the leader hand over hand to the starboard side of the cockpit, watching its movements. Marvel's stern was low to the water, a convenient cockpit to work from, requiring only short gaff hooks, almost eye to eye with a fish. With the salmon alongside the boat, I pulled up on the leader to lift its head just slightly out of the water, and at the same moment, the back of the gaff came down in a sharp crack to stun the fish. With a twick, quick twist of the gaff, it took both arms to, bring the sh to haul it aboard. The enormous fish was on deck. The fin spoon was dangling from its jaw. After I stopped shaking, I looked at the massive fish. The fish gods had noticed. I unclipped the fin spoon and placed it inside the wheelhouse for safekeeping, for keeping its magic and its luck, its status elevated to mythical object. After a few more passes, the tide changed, the fish moved back out to deep water, and the bite was over. I had my prize and a fish hold full of fish. Later, I went into Goddard Hot Springs to sell. A dozen boats were anchored up around the bay when I pulled up alongside the buying station. A few guys were standing around watching. I don't know what they were expecting as I unloaded one beautiful, large king salmon after another. I needed help getting the big one out of the fish hold. Without any adrenaline, it was hard to maneuver all that weight. The guys watching on the dock definitely weren't expecting that to come out of Marvel's fish hold. They put it on the scale to weigh the fish. Dressed out, it weighed 58 pounds, sending it into the 600-pound range. Someone offered to take my photo holding the fish. They all congratulated me and wanted to know what kind of gear I was using. I said something about salted herring, but I didn't mention anything about the fin spoon. A girl has to have some secrets. <laughs> the next morning, every one of those dozen boats followed Marvel out of the harbor 
it was a little shocking seeing them all trying to catch fish on my spot, crowding onto my shallow reef, but the bite was over. It's no use trying to catch yesterday's fish. They'd moved on. After a few hours of no action, the fleet of boats moved on too, leaving me alone with a cup of coffee in one hand, east of Eden in the other, waiting for the right tide and the fish to bite. Thank you very much. She's got her fin spoon. She brought the magic to us. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go, mythical status. <laughs> that was Annie Howell Adams, recorded at the Liberty Theater in Astoria, Oregon, on Friday, February 24th, 2023. Well, that's it. This one's in the tote. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is written and produced by Brad Wartman. The theme music for this episode is courtesy of Mark Allen Lovewell and Molly Canole. If you'd like to appear on or have comments about the show, please send an email to thefisherpoetryarchive at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to haul the latest episodes into your net. The Fisher Poetry Podcast is available via our podcast host, Spotify, as well as Apple, Google, and Amazon. You can listen to our other podcast episodes, watch our YouTube videos, and join our community by going to thefisherpoetryarchive.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Come all young sailormen, listen to me. I'll sing you a song of the fish in the sea. Blow your winds westerly, westerly blow. We're bound to the southern, so steady she goes. 